got thrown out of Venetian, thrown out of, uh, what was it? Park MGM, it's called now. I forget what it was called back then. Got caught, thrown out of Bellagio. That was, that was the, that was, that one was the one where they just couldn't believe that they were doing what they were doing, but they're like, listen, we don't want you touching the dice anymore. Just, you can stay here, you can play, you can bet, but you can't touch the dice. And you could see by the look on their face that they, they couldn't believe that they were doing this. Some of the guys probably didn't agree with it. They just thought, yeah, this is, you know, just let them do what they're doing. But, um, uh, they, maybe the reputation had something to do with it. But yeah, we ended up getting backed off at some places. And when you get backed off betting craps, playing craps in this manner, you know, doing the throwing thing, you can't go back in three months later looking a little different or avoiding a certain shift because the moment you pick up the dice, it, it, I mean, you stand out like a sore thumb. There's no way to be casual about the thing and disguise what you're doing. You're you're setting dice and you're throwing them. You're standing in the same spot, you know, and that's it. I mean, there is no going back. So when you, once you lose a place, it's gone for good. You're listening to Risk of Ruin. I'm John Reeder. This is episode 30, Rabbit Hole. You can probably tell by the clip from the top of the show that this is an episode about craps. More specifically, this episode is about dice control, or the theory that you can win at craps using physical skill. So we're not talking about betting on lucky numbers or somebody you know that always bets hard 12 and quote unquote usually wins. We're talking about using physics to win at craps. Practitioners of dice control set the dice to align certain numbers, then they use a throwing motion meant to reduce random bounces. The idea is that they will throw relatively fewer sevens by doing that. And I have to say that the thing I really love about this topic is that dice control, through its mere mention, manages to sound both kind of bullshitty and also totally possible. I mean, if I met someone who told me they could do this, I would nod politely, and then I would walk away thinking, that guy is completely delusional, but I bet I could do it. And believe me when I say that I understand how stupid that sounds, here's another thing I like about this. It sounds kind of fun. If you've spent any time counting cards at Blackjack, then you know it can be really boring. But throwing dice? That sounds more like darts or horseshoes or the silly games on the Carnival Midway. And who doesn't love to demonstrate prowess at arbitrary games of fine motor functioning? Dice control has an interesting history in gambling circles, but it's also gotten attention from people that you wouldn't really associate with such a degenerate topic. I'd been to Vegas a number of times, you know, I've seen people play craps, but, but I'd never actually played myself. Um, and so I really engrossed myself in the game where, uh, you know, I talked to, you know, pit bosses, I talked to, you know, a number of people who had different techniques for, you know, advantage play. Um, I talked to some, you know, statisticians and other people who sort of said it was impossible. And, you know, so I kind of talked to a whole gamut of people and really learned the game. That's Robert Scott. He's a PhD economist at Monmouth. Maybe you're familiar with his work if you've read academic papers like Intergroup Disparity Among Student Loan Borrowers or Inadequate Household Deleveraging, Income, Debt, and Social Provisioning. Well, in addition to those page turners, Robert has also co-authored a couple of papers on dice control. I think what's so fascinating about this question is that um, it, it does seem possible, right? I mean... You know, you look at a lot of games, you know, roulette or whatever, you know, I mean, first of all, that's beatable with a computer, but, you know, but a lot of games, you can't really adjust the odds. I mean, craps one of those things where you actually control the physical movement, you know, of the devices that have the outcome. So you just want to think that it's, you know, that it's possible. If Michael Jordan can, you know, score so many points or some people can shoot, you know, 100 free throws in a row without missing why, you know, why shouldn't this be possible too? Robert's work on craps has only been published in the past few years, but he's had a casual interest for a long time. In between my master's and PhD, I worked for the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And there was a guy who worked there. It was a really funny guy. 
And uh, we talked about all kinds of stuff. And he um, said, uh, we were talking one day and he just said, hey, I, you know, um, me, you know, my buddies and I, we have a, you know, craps table in our, in my basement, you know, we practice. And he said, you know, we go out to the casinos and, you know, we win. And I said, well, you know, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I, you throw the dice, you know, a particular way, you know, you can influence the outcome. And so I, you know, of course I, you know, being a good economist, I, uh, you know, and statistician, I said, oh, okay, you know, all right. You know, humoring him, um, thinking that he was, he was, you know, out of his mind, um, or, or just, uh, thinking he had an advantage, uh, thinking that it was just, you know, impossible. But, um, but then, uh, cigar aficionado, uh, reported a, uh, had an article, uh, a long time ago, you know, in I think it was 2004, <clears throat> 2005 issue about Stanford Wong's book, uh, his, uh, you know, Wong on Dice. Robert's not the first person with an empirical background to get interested in advantage craps. In fact, lots of the folks who have debated it have been serious numbers people. It's just that they were also professional gamblers and they didn't talk about dice in ivory towers. They argued about it on Advantage Play message boards. This is Frank B. He's been a professional gambler for a few decades, so he was around when dice became a hot issue on the boards. The way they operate is they can't throw you out for saying, hey, you know, we don't like the way you play blackjack. That's something they can't do in Atlantic City. They can do other things that kind of make it difficult for you, but they can't tell you to get out. Like in Vegas, they'll just throw you right out on your ear and you say, why? They say, we ain't got to tell you why. So... I started out there and I, and I was, and because of that, I was not used to this resistance, this adversarial relationship to the degree that it was in Vegas. So when I eventually moved to Vegas to play blackjack, after doing pretty good in Atlantic City, when I mean pretty good is for a guy starting out, the stakes that he starts out at, um, you know, things changed. You know, we were, not only were the games different, we had a lot of handheld games. We were going, uh, into places where they were looking out for people like us and get, you know, so I wasn't used to establishing uh, cover, you know, in other words, playing in a, in a way that, uh, you know, they might not be able to so easily detect what you're doing. And, uh, you know, it didn't go well that first, the, the first uh, try in Vegas, you know, I, I went bust after about, it didn't take very long, like four months. And so I had to learn different ways to make money gambling or just give it up. And fortunately at that time, I had been a customer for a year or two of Anthony Curtis at Las Vegas Advisor. And a lot of the things that he wrote about were how to take advantage of Vegas, basically how to grab the low-hanging fruit. And I had ignored that sort of when I got there. But then, you know, when you're out of money, you say, well, I can make, you know, uh, I discover you can make $60, $70 a day just, you know, running coupons all day. Well, back then that would pay the rent. So I and that I started doing that and that led to learning other games. And before you knew it, I had, you know, sort of like a repertoire of things that I could do to make money. And I'm, it, it's fortunate that it went that way because it made me a much it made me a well-rounded gambler because I had to learn all the games and all the ways to beat them. And, you know, how the casinos worked and, um, you know, promotion wise, how to take advantage of those. And if, if things had gone well, like some guys show up in Vegas and they got a blackjack bankroll. They got it from somewhere or whatever. They got a sports betting bankroll. And they got a, they have a lot of money to start with. They don't need to delve into these other areas or learn anything. So what you end up with is a guy, he's got he's like a one-trick pony. And he can do one thing. But when you start to even have a discussion about another area of gambling, you go, wow, this guy don't know very much. He's, he's really square when it comes to other stuff. He just knows sports. And you see a lot of that. But uh, the way that things started out for me is – actually was real fortunate because I was forced to learn all aspects of casino gaming. Frank arrived in Vegas at a time of tremendous change. The strip that we know today only started to take shape in the 90s. It was like dominoes falling as the old places closed their doors and the mega resorts took their place. When I got to town, it was a lot of the old school places that aren't there anymore. Desert Inn, Sands. I spent a lot of time at the Dunes. Um, yeah, they're, 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 the corporations hadn't really taken over. The Mirage had just opened. MGM, but there were variations of it. There were like, it was, this was after the fire. There was a big fire there that devastated uh, uh, MGM, Bally's MGM. And um, yeah, there were, a lot of the new places weren't up yet, but over the next course of the next 
definitely the next 10 years, a lot of new places sprung up. And uh, so that's good. You know, casino openings are big opportunities and uh, um, casino closings are big opportunities as well. If you wanted to get into that. So, yeah, it, it was things were always happening. Things were changing. And uh, it was a it was a real good time to be there. So the question, can craps be beaten? That's not really up for debate. Craps can be beaten like any casino game. The most obvious way would be to just find a promo that's juicy enough to overcome the house edge. If the casino says, we're going to pay three to two on pass line bets every Monday, then you can just show up and hammer that promo until they cry, no mas. Every casino game gets its house edge from the difference between the probabilities and the payout. So if they change the payout, there could be an edge. We had a you know, basic uh, requisite knowledge of crafts because sometimes you would have promotions that ran around crafts and you'd have to know, you know, how often does a seven occur? How, you know, what if they gave you a coupon that, you know, gave you, a, you know, bar the two and 12, what, you know, they used to have different types of promotions that you could go. So we had to learn the probabilities and the ins and outs of the crap of the craps table for those things. But as far as dice control goes, the first instance of me hearing it was from Stanford Wong, who I used to work with back then. You know, I was one of the guys that would run around town, run around Las Vegas and get all the details of all the blackjack tables, uh, blackjack tables for his publication. And you had to do that once a month. And it was a, it, it didn't pay anything. I can't remember whatever it was. It was peanuts, but it forced me to get out there every month and scout the casinos and, and, and you know, just give them the once over going through. And that was the biggest value to doing that. But I knew Stanford. And so when the dice thing came up, you know, he talked to me about it and, you know, asked questions just like you're asking, hey, you ever hear of this thing? And um, we, as he did with other people, but eventually uh, when the the whole thing turned into like that challenge, that's the point where I got interested in it because I was asked to be there. I was there at that challenge. The book Wong on Dice and a related prop bet challenge were the turning point for dice control. And I'll explain why. First, the author, Stanford Wong, is not known to be a bullshitter. He's a serious gaming analyst, and that's kind of understating things. His books are in the Advantage Play Starter Kit. Professional Blackjack might be the best card counting book, and his book, Sharp Sports Betting, has been mentioned by guests of this podcast as the Bible when they were starting out. Also, his publications like Current Blackjack News and the Green Chip Forum at BJ21 have been critical resources in the Advantage Play world. So if I say he's a giant, there wouldn't be even an ounce of exaggeration. But even with that resume, when Wong said that he was writing a book about dice and he believed it was possible to influence the outcome with throwing technique, there were plenty of skeptics. So gamblers who'd been reading Wong's work for years found themselves in the awkward position of doubting him. In fact, some of these guys disagreed so strongly that they decided to settle the dispute with a wager. Wong and a partner went into a casino and rolled 500 times to prove that they had some ability to reduce the number of sevens. Here's Robert. You know, Stanford Wong basically said, hey, you know, we're doing this. You know, he posted it, you know, to the world and everybody. Hey, we're going down. We're doing this. We're testing it. You know, everybody bring your, you know, uh, bring your, your, your pessimist beliefs and your optimistic beliefs, you know, come down and just watch um, and record the data. And, you know, and we'll see, you know, that's absolutely the way to do it. And Frank was actually there for the challenge. It was, it was a decent amount, an amount enough to satisfy the math guys. That, okay. This is, this is at least one SD off. So he's saying he's going to, he can uh, present a shooter and he's going to throw a couple few hundred rolls. He's going to be at least one SD off normal. And they're going to give us even money on that. They're going to take that all day long. So that, that's how a thing, that's how it, uh, it got uh, started. We ended up, I ended up being there as a representative of one of the guys who bet against Stanford. And I was there to record and witness the session uh, along with a couple other guys that are well-known in the gambling community. These are all math guys that, you know, Shackelford, I believe. I don't know if Shackelford was there, but I think he had action. Um, King Yao, if you, if you don't know who that is, he's an author of one of the better sports books out there, Weighing the Odds. Um, and, you know, we just all kind of took over the table. And, Little Joe, I guess his name was Little Joe Green, I think his name was, was Stanford Tune. I never met him before in my life. Um, never heard of him that before and never heard of him since, actually. Uh, <laughs> but that was Stanford's guy. And w- what we did is we positioned ourselves around the table. And uh, a lot of us 
deduced that you know pen and paper made us uncomfortable so we we would track things with chips which is a common thing um and uh it began and whenever little joe was done shooting like he would seven out we would all just pass the dice around to him again so that he could shoot again we'd get this thing over with nobody's interested in stanford throwing me throwing anybody throwing we just want to get this done with and get the guy however many rolls it is that they had agreed to do and at the end of the challenge um Stanford side won. It's, uh, you know, I forget the specifics of it, but he won with like some room to spare. And uh, that's how it started. And uh, it, it, yes, it did get me interested, other guys interested. But I suspect that had that gone the other way, you and I wouldn't be having this discussion right now, because that's what that was. That was the impetus for all of this. Not not dice control existing in uh, in the world of the recreational gambler, where like hucksters are trying to take advantage of them. Hey, you know, just like I got a roulette system, I got a slot system. Yeah. This is where serious guys started to get interested and take a look at it. And I don't think any of that would have happened had Stanford lost that first round. This all happened years ago. So let me just fill in some details. Random expectation would have been for Wong and his partner, Little Joe Green, to roll about 83 sevens. The over-under on the wager was 79 and a half. So Wong was giving the doubters the best of it. Then he and Little Joe Green finished with just 74 sevens. I mean, that's hard to ignore. One of the greatest gambling writers makes a claim, then offers to put money behind it, and then easily wins the bet? Doesn't that settle the issue of whether dice control is possible? Well, maybe not. Wong's side came up big with money on the line, but their results also could have occurred from random chance some of the time. Actually, if you ran thousands of these challenges, you would end up with that result about one out of seven times. So not the most likely outcome, but also not even close to impossible. It's that area of probability that our brains really struggle with. In fact, this issue of trying to tease out skill from luck is always hard in gambling. That's kind of the point. It's that thing that keeps the tables in Las Vegas full. And Stanford Wong's challenge was fairly well designed. If it's hard to understand luck versus skill in that context, how could you make sense of all of the extreme outcomes that have occurred in casinos over the years? Here's Robert again. You know, the longest craps roll was in Atlantic City, not far from me, just a little over an hour away at Borgata, you know, where a woman rolled for over four hours and rolled a stretch of 154 rolls, you know, and so things like that that happen, you just think, geez, is that even possible? So, um, so with the help of a, of a mathematician friend, I, I, we were able to code craps games and basically run billions of craps hands. So the Stanford Wong challenge produced an impressive result. And yet you can't rule out luck as the best explanation, which brings me to the next point that I think we should talk about. Anytime randomness is high enough that skill and luck can be easily confused. You will find people who are happy to profit from that fact. Richard Munchkin has been a frequent guest on this show, and he's going to tell us about this kind of thing. Richard is a lifelong professional gambler, so he's seen just about everything there is to see. Over 20 years ago, I get contacted by a, uh, a card counter, and he says, hey, uh, now, at this time, there was no golden touch. There was nobody talking about this. There was no, there was nothing. Right. And, and he, so he contacts me and he says, I know a guy who claims he can control dice. And I said, you know, great. I'd love to talk to him. So he gives me the guy's email and we get on the phone and I say, look, if this is true that you can do this, I can make you really, really wealthy. And, um, I, I said, so, um, you know, we will, uh, pay for, I had a team at the time. I said, we will pay for you to fly out here to Las Vegas. We'll put you up in a, a hotel on the strip. And, um, but you know, before we do anything serious with this, I want to have a test and we'll go to a real crap table in a dealer school and, you know, have you throw to see that, you know, convince us that this is real. At first he, he said, you know, that, that he was willing to do that. And then he mentioned like teaching me and, and my teammates. And I was like, well, no, why would we, 
waste all this time trying to learn this. This must take a long time to learn. You know, we'll just have you do the throwing. And and uh, and he, he said, oh, you know, I'd be too nervous betting all that money. And I said, you'll never bet more than a minimum. You'll bet $5. And the rest of us will be at the table betting the money. And, because, oh, I said, when he said he could do this, I said, well, wow, you must be a millionaire. And he said, oh, no, you know, I bet small. I bet red chips. And I was like, well, why? And he said, oh, I, I'd be too nervous to bet, you know, a lot of money. And I said, well, but if you just, I mean, you must be winning money. And eventually, don't you want to bet more? And and I said, but we're willing to put up the money. So you have no risk. But then he, he had all these excuses that that would make him too nervous. And and he didn't think he'd be under able to perform under pressure like that. And, you know, but basically he wanted to teach me and my team for $5,000. So the problem, very simply, is this just doesn't add up. Frank had been a professional for years by the time he got interested in craps. So he knew enough to be skeptical of the gurus, but he still wanted to hear them out. I said, you know what? As pay, painful as it is, because I know that they're, most of them are completely full of it, um, I'm going to go because I'm going to gather in whatever valuable information they may have as far as you know the mechanics of doing this. Uh, this could be a big shortcut. So that's what I did um, in, in real early on. I start paying to go to these guys, and it was tough because you know once you're in the room, you realize you're you're, you're there with a lot of people, they're kind of delusional, you know, and they're ready to be sold. They're ready. They, they, they want this to work in the worst way. And they're ready to believe whatever this guy tells them. And he did, they, they all dished a lot of nonsense, um, but, but they were receptive to it. So it was kind of being in like a, uh, I've, I've, I've said it's similar to going to a flat earth meeting where they're all just, they just want to believe, you know, and uh, had to, did, did gather some good information going there, you know, why they do, you know, why they shoot from this particular spot, why they hold the dice this, why they set it that way. So we were gathering all this information that we were going to process and make of it what we thought uh, was relevant. But but it was the way that they handled the students that were there that that stood out the most. It, I mean, they would they would line a guy up. He he hadn't been throwing dice ten minutes in his life. And he would throw the dice, you know, what I now realize was very clumsily down there. But it would come up a hard eight. And the, and the instructor would go, there you go. That's it. That's That was a good throw. I'm like, that was not a good throw. That was clearly just, they just went down there and they came up 44. I mean, I, I you know, but he's, it's, it's a little kind of brainwashing thing going on. And of course, the converse was true. Uh, if they threw a seven, he'd go, oh, you know what? You know what you did wrong there? You know, as if. Some little piece of advice, if he'd have tinkered, like this guy detected a problem. He was going to solve all the problems. So it was, yeah, it was very carnival barker-like, as you say. And, um, you know, they it, it was a real, some guys were worse than others, but it was overall, it was a con job from each and every one. Just watching them, watching their interaction with the students, you know, you, you got a real feel of what's going on here. Okay, I kind of got an idea. But it was only on the back end that you were 100% sure that this that they were just totally full of it because every one of these seminars, uh, training sessions, or whatever it was that you were paying for, for their expertise, they all ended the same way. And that's where they're going to go into the casino and they're going to take you, you're going to shoot, and they're going to shoot too. And if you want, they'll shoot with your money. And the best part is if he wins, you get to keep as the, as the banker half the profits. And I'm like, okay, so these guys are getting a free roll on the students on the back end. And on top of it, even a double clincher is that every single one of them, uh, the sessions ended with a discussion of betting strategy. And the betting strategy always, always was some kind of progression, regression, some kind of betting system. What Frank is saying there probably wouldn't even seem that odd to a recreational gambler because Unless you're an advantage player, gambling is full of nonsense. Progression systems, martingales, whatever. These things make some sense to people who don't spend their time thinking about the math behind gambling. But Frank had started in blackjack. 
And the thing about blackjack is that it lays out very clearly the way that the house edge can flip and become a player edge. And it also teaches you to bet in proportion to your bankroll. None of this double bets after a loss or increase your bets three times, then drop back down or whatever. You know, the first thing I learned was blackjack. The first way, you know, advantage play I ever learned was blackjack. And I'm grateful that I uh, learned that because there's a certain um, one one right answer, everything else is wrong kind of thing about blackjack. And, you know, developing a, a, a system for beating blackjack, you always have the numbers there supporting you. There's a basic strategy. You learn that first. Then you learn how to track the deck and uh, ascertain the, the disparities within the, within the deck. Then you learn how to bet according to the disparities. Then you can, if you want, you, you can progress to other more uh, advanced techniques, but that are based on what you've previously learned, basic strategy followed by current cutting. They're all sort of grounded in that. Um, so when we tried to build a methodology for examining the crap scene, we tried to do it as blackjack-like as possible. So we need, we need some base statistics here to start uh developing what would then be a, a method of play, then a betting strategy and all that. Um, and so it's a long road to do that. Accumulating the data, that's the hard part. So we set right out on doing that as, as, you know, as efficiently and uh, objectively as possible. If you want to count cards, your equipment list isn't much longer than a few decks of cards. But in craps, the equipment list is the key indicator you're down the rabbit hole. Once you've got a 12-foot table in your living room, there's no going back. I went along Industrial Parkway, like behind the casinos. They have all these warehouses and places that make gambling equipment. And so I popped my head into some. And one of them, uh, I talked to the guy and he says, yeah, I'm making craps tables right now. I'm making a batch for the win. And I go, he goes, come on in the warehouse and take a look. So he went in, went in there and sure enough, you know, he's making uh, a dozen tables for the win, which, which was getting ready to open. And I said, you know what? Make 13. Make me one of those. Uh, that's exactly what I'm looking for. And, you know, this guy didn't understand why I wanted a brand new craps table. He, he thought, well, he goes to me, he says, listen, I'm, I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to cut the table in half. I'm going to sink it so that it snaps together and latches. It'll make it easy for you to take up and down stairs, like in warehouses, wherever you have your game. This guy thought I was going to do like an illegal game, you know, some kind of gambling operation where I was going to be moving the table. And I said, no, man, this is just going in a, go ahead and do that. That sounds great for moving anyway, but um, I'm just doing this to experiment on. So he built me a table. I forget how long it took. It took a couple few weeks. Might have took longer than that. And um, uh, brought it, and it was it was great. You know, it was it, it was the, the test table that we accumulated all the rolls on, and the only thing we had to do with it was tweak the surface. One issue I can imagine for this kind of project is that you accidentally end up cherry picking your results. Just imagine looking at your data and thinking. Well, in the morning when we were fresh, we threw really well. So those are the rolls that count. Or you say, well, in the afternoon, we were warmed up and we threw really well. So those are the rolls that count. The end result is that you just kind of fool yourself by data mining the slice of the results that showed edge. And when you do that, you're the only one that gets hurt. That could have been a risk for Frank, but he had a very simple solution. Once we, once we had the program written that the, written the way... Uh, that we wanted, where it would track all these different things. We, we said, listen, this is it. Every roll counts from now on. So don't go up there and start farting around, whatever. You're going to go up there, laptop to your left, enter. If nobody's doing it for you, enter it in. And, 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 and that's it. Because we had a very specific protocol. You know, we had the two dice were two different colors. So we knew which one was which. You know, we had red and a green die and the computer had it, you know, accounted for that. Like we knew what the right die was doing. We knew what the left die was doing. And uh, there, there was no, all right, I'm going to see if I can throw from the end of the table. And say, no, 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 no. We, we, you, you, you're stick right. or you know, We had one guy that was stick right, and the, the other two of us were stick left. And that's it. Okay? You're throwing. You're ready to throw. Record the rolls. And that's it. I don't care if you think you're having a bad day. or what. Every roll counts. To help you think about the theory of dice control, let me offer a hypothetical. Imagine that you could glue the dice together and roll them. You would have a massive edge, because the way that dice are laid out would mean that you could completely eliminate sevens. You'd glue the dice so that the one and six on each die are stuck together, and then you'd rotate the dice so that the threes line up and the fours line up. Every roll would result in a hard way number, 
and you'd never roll a seven. Robert's first paper simply worked out how close you would need to be to this hypothetical complete ability to never roll a seven in order to get an edge. So we, you know, mathematically measured how good you'd have to be at this technique in order to uh, basically win, you know, have a positive expected value. You know, we measured it to be basically would have to have an 8% accuracy rating, um, which isn't that much. In other words, you only have to really influence the dice in an effective way, um, 8% of the time to, you know, 7 to 8% of the time to, to gain an advantage. Frank wanted to make sure his results could be relied upon because that was the only way to eventually make money. Robert also wanted to create a systematic approach because he wanted to publish his work. So the next step was, you know, is if, if it doesn't take that much control to, to, you know, give yourself an advantage, if you could mechanize the process, in other words, make it sort of the perfect dice thrower or near perfect every single time, then we should be able to exhibit even more control, right? Make it even more profitable. Uh, so that was, that was the thinking there. And I'm no engineer. So I think the first paper stands. And I think the second paper was sort of a, um, <laughs> a you know, an economist's attempt to, to build a machine to try to replicate dice throws, um, which means it's probably amateurish at best. When it came time to build a dice throwing machine, Robert got some help from his mechanically inclined friend. His initial idea, my friend's initial idea, which I thought was really good, was, was to have like a hand you know, that basically was almost like a rubber mechanical hand that held the dice, you know, the way that we would expect and then would throw the dice, which I thought was really good. The problem is that was beyond my, you know, technical capability. I would love to see like an engineer at like MIT or something, you know, like, you know, develop basically a throwing arm. Um, that would be great. Uh, again, I'm just, I'm just a lowly economist. So, you know, like uh, designing machines is not my, uh, you know, my forte. But, but I, I looked at dice throwers and I, I talked to dice throwers and I kind of asked, you know, what do you do? You know, do you flick it? Do you, you know, do you knuckleball it? Do you, um, you know, do you, do, do you add any twist? You know, you know, what's the process? And they kind of explained, you know, how they do it. They like to put backspin on it. This, you know, I like to do it with backspin. I like it to be a nice, smooth, easy throw and all the rest of it. And, uh, and so I measured dice throws using a, a speed camera and to see how fast the arm was moving, how fast the dice were moving, what their speed of rotation was, you know, the RPMs, um, and sort of, you know, got sort of a gauge as to, okay, here's kind of the, the optimal sort of, you know, spin rate. Here's the release. Here's the speed. And then we set up the machine. So I started with a, a long piece of metal that basically had a channel in the middle of it. And this may have been Nate's idea too. So with a channel down the middle of it, and then the two dice fit right side by side perfectly together, right in, in that channel, just barely, you know, just barely fit inside that channel. Uh, so I said, you know, Nate, what should I do? And he said, well, is it, you know, there's this website you can go to where guys who have machine, you know, machine shops and machining gear, uh, basically this is, this is where they hang out. You know, it's the, uh, you know, the Instagram for, for guys who like to tinker with stuff, um, and have the equipment to do it. So I posted something on there saying, Hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a dumb academic economist and, uh, you know, I don't know anything about this, but I'm trying to build a dice rolling machine, uh, you know, all the rest of it. And I, I sent a couple pictures and kind of did a little mock-up, you know, I'd like something that, you know, puts backspin on the dice. I want something, you know, here's, here's the channel that I have. And I think it'd be cool to design something that could, you know, launch the dice, you know, um, at varying degrees. Anyway, so a guy got, you know, back in touch with me pretty quickly, actually. Um, he, uh, you know, he jumped right on it and kind of said, hey, you know, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty close to you. He said, I live, uh, you know, he said, I live uh, right outside of Atlantic City. And, uh, you know, you should, uh, you know, if you, you came down, you know, we could meet. And, uh, you know, he said, and I would do it. And so uh, he says, you know, I'll, I'll kind of get, you know, the idea. So I said, okay, great. So I um, went down, met with the guy, took him my, my channel, you know, my aluminum channel chassis and kind of explained the idea. And, uh, and he, you know, takes me in the back and, and says, Hey, you know, um, you know, he said, Oh yeah. So I, I got all kinds of ideas. He had already started kind of mock mocking something up. Uh, his name was Tom. And I said, okay. And, you know, he, he had a bunch of questions, you know, like, you know, how, how far, how fast, how, you know, and he kind of liked dice. And that, that's what my friend Nate said. He said, 
He said, you need one of these guys to be like a degenerate gambler. <laughs> now, Tom is not a degenerate gambler, but he said, you know, you need some degenerate gambler who just like loves this idea and has, you know, a machine shop and wants to help you. And while Tom's not a degenerate gambler, he did love to throw dice. And so he, he loved the idea and he did a phenomenal job. You know, we talked out kind of the design and what, what we, you know, what we needed and what we wanted and uh, the thing's a beast, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big, heavy, um, because he sort of said, you know, do you want this to be, I remember one question, he said, do you want this to be built to last just till the experiment ends? Or do you want it to last forever? And I said, well, I said, if we're going to do it, let's do it right. Like make it last forever. And he said, all right, no problem. And then he, he's the one that really, uh, took over and he made it very, uh, a very user-friendly, which was nice. And he also, um, you know, made it in- incredibly adjustable. You know, you could adjust the, the angle on it. You could adjust, um, the speed of the spring. You had different springs that, that I could put into it. Um, you could adjust, uh, the rammer rod. Um, you know, you could adjust lots of different things so that, so that you could really dial it in and have it mimic dice throws like as much as possible. It's kind of funny because I think of gambling as this perfect toy problem to think about risk and uncertainty in the world. And to the extent that it's also kind of a greasy business, I'm purely entertained by it. For instance, I love the contrast between guys who understand math well enough to know when slot machines go positive, and yet they spend their time in smoky casinos elbowing out tourists to get the juicy plays. But not everyone is going to appreciate that grease aesthetic. Although, although I have to admit, you know, uh, the dean at the time, uh, it took a little convincing to put the craps table in there, and then uh, and and he didn't like the idea of uh, uh, of, of me teaching everybody craps, um, you know, and and then I wanted to keep it there forever, and uh, that was that was that was a no go. I've seen a short video of Robert's dice rolling machine, and the best way I can describe it is sort of like a crossbow. The dice go in a slot, then there's a spring, and it shoots the dice out. I'll post a link in the show notes because there are pictures of the machine in one of Robert's papers. Also, because it has ways to customize the toss, you could tweak the settings until it does something non-random. For initially, we tinkered with the machine. Then we had the high-speed camera come down, and that's when we uh, optimized it and said, okay, here's how dice throwers are throwing. Here's the height, here's the speed, here's the spin rate and everything. And we, we, um, dialed the machine into those specifications, right? And then we left it at those specifications for every roll for, for a a ton of rolls. Um, and so we rolled a whole bunch on those sort of ideal settings and we didn't see any, you know, any uh, randomness. Then we started, then, like you said, uh, probably, you know, uh, in some ways where we should have started was we sort of said, is there a way for, you know, can we produce, you know, non-random events? And so that's when we really started messing with the angle and the speed and the spin rate and all those other factors. And so we we tracked, you know, we would do, let's say, two or 300 rolls on a particular setting. And then we'd make an adjustment to the setting and do, you know, more rolls. And then, you know, we'd consistently address that. So we had exactly what the settings and the adjustments and the distance and everything were, and, and we couldn't, couldn't repeat it. Robert was fine trying to answer the question, is dice control possible in theory? But that wouldn't have gotten Frank B. very far. He could only make money if dice control is also possible in practice. He had to have a way to get to the same reproducibility that Robert was looking for, but without the machine. So he took a cue from other people who strive for consistent results. If you ever watch an NBA player, a, good, a, a one that's a good free throw shooter, you'll notice that he has a specific routine and he goes through it each and every time he's at the line. And if something disturbs him, he stops, resets himself again, and then goes through his routine. Um, and that's very much what it's like when you're, at least, you know, the way I approached shooting the dice. And I'll go one thing further uh, as far as, you know, just associating with it, like fine-tuned uh, activities like dart throwing and stuff. There is uh, the one thing that sort of – at first it catapulted me ahead just in basketball. Like my free throw percentage rose like 10% just by applying this. It's called the respiratory pause. And what it is is there, there's, a, there's a, a moment in, in, in the course of taking one breath where you're at the bottom of your exhale – is when your body is at its most calm. And it's at that point that you should be doing the thing like throw the dart, shoot the pool cue, uh, pull the trigger, or throw the dice. 
And that's going to give you the most consistent results. And once I incorporated that, you know, turned into my routine just the way it is th- shooting a free throw, you know, get everything, uh, get your feet set, get the, the in position, get ready, breathe, execute. Frank's dice adventure shows a really incremental approach to getting an advantage. And I think that incremental approach is something that recreational bettors wouldn't think of. Recreational gamblers think that bets either win or lose. They don't really think of them as things where you could grind away at each element of the house edge. But Frank went through each assumption that exists at the crap table and tried to find vulnerabilities. A lot of people don't know this. There's there's more than one size dice in the casino. When we learned this, as we went from casino to casino, I go, these things certainly feel different. And sure enough, you go, you know, we run off to the gambler store and we say, well, those are big. Those dice are a little bigger. They're a fraction bigger. I forget how much bigger they were, but they were big enough that you could feel the difference in your hands. And we end up calling these clunkers. And then once we got the clunkers going and realized who was using, which was coincidentally, Bally's was one of them. That corporation used those dice, and that's the place that we ended up giving them by far the best results on the back end with. We realized that these clunkers, they could add a little bit of uh, advantage or a little more, more, give you a little more ability to control the dice. And we started incorporating that into the data sample, and we would partition it. So I'm throwing this session with clunkers, throwing this session with regular dice. So we, after a while, we start throwing a lot with clunkers. Because the surface of tables varies wildly. These are all things we had to learn along the way. It varies wildly from casino to casino. They all have a felt on top, but it's what's underneath there that, that varies. Some, some of them will have uh, linoleum. Some will have uh, a real thin carpet pad. Some will have newspaper or you know layers of newspaper. So what we wanted to do was create a bounce on the back end that was better than average, but not dynamite because we didn't want to collect this, you know, if things worked out how we hoped, we didn't want to collect this tremendous sample. And then everywhere we go, we can't make the dice react the same way because the tables are all tougher. So we were shooting for something and like, you know, this is this is as good as about 30, the top 30% of the team, somewhere around the 70%. And uh, ended up just putting layers of newspaper around it. Um, but once we had that, we had all the equipment and we had the, the one of the guys was a, could write the, wrote the program for tracking the roles, which improved you know, over time, he kept making tweaks to it, and we were ready to go with the equipment and with the uh, data collection, which were the computers with the programming. We had a much more confined area, which was down there somewhere inside of six inches from the wall, you know, three to six inches from the wall. That's the spot that we were aiming for. And then after that, we wanted, we were concerned with once the dice first struck the table, what did they do after that? Did they, you know, go all over the place or could you make them come to rest in a really confined area? And how often could you do that? Eventually, Frank and his partners recorded thousands of rolls, and their results indicated that they were suppressing sevens. So they took their plane to the casino, slowly, at first. Uh, you know, once we all got to that point, then we started taking a look and say, okay, we need to go out and figure out if, if this is going to be something that we're going to make money on, we got to figure out how to execute. Because, you know, there's a lot more to consider when you go into a casino than there is in your living room. You know, you got other players there. You got the, the staff there. You got a really slow pace of, of play unless you do something about it. Um, you got different equipment. Um, so all these type of things resulted, and we would go out and they would it would be playing for, for low limit, low stakes, but was also scouting. But the one reason that this craps thing was interesting to me is whether it was something that was far off the course of what standard AP play is, where you, where you, you find an opportunity, you verify your edge. It's the big thing there, verify the edge. And then you proceed on how to execute. Now, with this, verifying the edge is the big, is, is the big problem. And, uh, uh, but it was an interesting enough project and definitely something that if we were able to make it work, that we would, uh, it might be a really good opportunity. The holy grail of advantage play is something that the casino would just let you get away with. That's the thing that card counters dream of. That's the thing that sports bettors dream of. They just want the house to leave them alone. So I think it's fair to say that the dream of dice control is also the dream of a play that the casino might just ignore. And if you've ever watched a crap table for a few minutes, it's like an OCD convention. It seems like every shooter has some ritual. So maybe even a very robotic advantage shooter could blend in. In fact, 
Robert talked to a pit boss who said that the casino really shouldn't be very concerned with the prospect of advantage craps. And he's basically said, and I didn't realize it until I had been to Vegas and Atlantic City and really paid attention. Look, he said, whenever I saw, he said, everybody thinks they have a method. Everybody thinks they have a, a technique. He said, um, he said, even if somebody came in and they were, they, ha- they were able to uh, gain an advantage, he said, it, it wouldn't matter because all the other bets are so bad. And I, I didn't really, so, I mean, I understood what he was saying, you know, that other people are betting on it. So, you know, so they can't have an advantage, but I was kind of like, well, what if people go with their momentum, you know, and, and bet sort of bet along with them? He said, yeah, maybe he said, but again, there are lots of bad bets. And as I started collecting data and looking at how people bet on craps, he's right. You know, people will place crazy prop bets, um, all over the table. God bless this pit boss, but I'm not buying it. I just do not believe that a casino will be okay with letting some patrons play with an edge. Not for any amount of time, and definitely not for serious money. Also, Frank's firsthand experience conflicts with what the pit boss was saying. Okay, we had one strike against us when this you know, when we go into the casino to play, and that we were all known blackjack players. So if we were playing rated, you know, it's tough not to. And even then, even if you are, they people recognize you. We were already under suspicion of being up to something. Um, when it came to the back-offs, though, they didn't know what to make of this whole dice-throwing thing because they had seen a, a parade of people over the last year come in there doing it in every conceivable way, throwing it from the edge of the table, from the far end of the table, doing, you know, throwing it uh, all different types of ways. And they didn't believe any of it. But what they do believe in or what they are superstitious about is if you win. So the, 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 all the back-offs that occurred happened at places we were winning at. You know, you, you, we might have the greatest conditions in the world at a certain place, but if we were losing, they didn't say they didn't really didn't do anything. They would actually some of the places would laugh at us. Um, but if you started the winning, they would just they didn't know what to make of it, and they just said, "Well, he looks like he spent a lot of time doing this, um, and he's winning." And that's about where I think the discussion ended. And in on top of it, you, you know, for us, he's got a reputation. Um, of being a guy that, you know, that's, that's dirty, you know, or he's up to no good as, as far as they're concerned. But the most common thing that they would do is they would tell you, if they wanted to get rid of you and they know I go about it, they would say, that last roll, your both dice did not hit the wall. You have to hit the wall every time. You understand? So, yeah, I understand. I'm trying. I go, sometimes it, sometimes it you know, hits the chips or whatever. He goes, no, you got to hit the wall every time. The next time you, you, you miss the wall, you're done. Frank was on the Gambling with an Edge podcast once and said that he was ahead by about $50,000 at one point in the craps play and then eventually gave some back so that he was up about 30000 when he threw in the towel. You're never going to be certain that you have an edge. You can only just keep building a case for yourself. And, you know, what applies to me might not apply to the next guy. Uh, but what, what eventually I got kicked out of Bally's. I think it, when I say kicked off, all I mean is they told you you can't shoot dice anymore. I mean, they they kicked you out. Um, but I got told at Bally's I couldn't play anymore. And Bally's ended up having, you know, maybe the, basically the Babe Ruth of tables. You know, they, they had one table in the craft pit that was, it was the, 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 the landing zone was just awesome. And I don't know what it was about it. Maybe it was some kind of soft knot of wood down there. But you would throw the dice down there, they would hit, and they would just die. And, you know, as we learned... As time went by, that was the most important aspect of the whole thing. You got to find the better the table, the better you're going to do. So you, what you did is you gravitated towards the good tables, which there weren't very many of. And I was playing there every afternoon. I would show up when they opened that table, like one o'clock, and then I would say, "Can I get a sign?" So they would give me a hundred dollar sign. So I was sure that I would have few, if any, other people shooting with me, and I just shot for a couple hours. And this went on for a while. And I didn't even start out that good. You know, but eventually I started to, 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 to gain some ground on them. And, you know, they just one day, I don't remember, it wasn't after any particularly good session. They just said, you know what, we, we, we don't want your dice action. And it, like I said, it could have been anything from uh, a combination of things, you know, because I had probably been backed off at blackjack there in the past. I can't, even, I don't remember. But once I lost that table, that was, I kind of started to, that was when I started to lose interest in the thing. Cause I was like, well, this, this is, this is how it's going to end up. Every place that you decide that you want to play, they're eventually going to get rid of you. And it's not like I go to like not blackjack where you can go across the street and probably get some kind of game that's similar. 
you know, I just you just lost a valuable out. It's more like sports betting when you lose a really good sports book and there's not that many of them. This whole endeavor rests on the idea that by throwing a certain way, you can reduce randomness in the outcome. But what if the number results look like you're suppressing sevens, and yet the actual physical motion of the dice show that the randomness is still there? Robert and Frank have both seen high-speed video of the dice, and they used very similar words to describe the action. He came down, set up, you know, had this huge setup with this, you know, multi-hundred-thousand-dollar camera. He had just been down um, at uh, Annapolis with the Navy testing rail guns, you know, where they were using the cameras to, like, measure, you know, supersonic speed bullets. I said, well, I said, that's a bit of a change to go from, you know, uh, Navy weapons research to, like, you know, dice throwing. What was convincing to me was when you watch the high-speed footage of the dice of a die hitting the material, you know, hard material, soft material, whatnot. I mean, the thing just, just you know, scrambles, uh, for lack of a better word. I mean, it really, when it hits, it has to hit dead flat for it to stay or to have the same effect. If it doesn't hit dead flat, on its base, which does happen. We were able to produce a bunch of rolls where it would spin and just land dead flat. Um, and those, those were fun. We, you know, we were hoping we were onto something there, but, but, but it was very hard to reproduce. But if you could get that, then absolutely, there's no question it can work. Um, but what, what I saw was once that die hit, even with a small variation on one of those four corners or the side or something, I mean, it just, you know, it just scrambles it. Um, it would just shoot off in crazy directions and it's just, it looks chaotic. may not be chaotic, but in, in a math sense, but it looks chaotic. I'd say a third of the way through it. Uh, I forget who sent us the video. It might've been Stanford. Um, we saw a video though, of a really good video, real slowed down video of the dice, the movement they had, the chaos that occurred once they hit the tape and that, that rattled us. So I'm looking at this, I go, all right, I guess you guys got to see this. And we look at it and I go, that's a problem because that looks like they're in a blender. And, you know, so what are we doing here? And I'll be honest with you, if we'd have seen that at the very beginning, it's, I'm almost certain we wouldn't have done anything. We would have never even tried this, but we didn't see it. Then. We saw it, you know, a few thousand rolls, however, in. And at that time we had a data set that suggested Something was going on. It wasn't just a mild suggestion. It was like, oh, this, you know, this, this looks, this definitely something's going on here. I think an important aspect of Robert's work is that he set out to do this to accomplish something. He didn't set out to debunk an idea he considered dumb. So he kept trying stuff to see if they could get anything to work. You know, we rolled a lot and we, um, we were not able to produce, you know, to minimize the number of sevens. Um, at any point in time, um, basically the, you know, the short answer is, wow, you know, we tried under lots of different conditions. I really, you know, this is important. I really wanted it to work because all the mathematicians said it wasn't possible. And there's nothing more fun than showing that the, you know, the people are wrong, right? Say, you know, conventional wisdom says this isn't possible. Well, our machine can do it. You know, I mean, that would have been like great, you know, instead you're kind of having to prove a negative, you know, I mean, you're having to you know, prove this negative, but I, I really wanted it to work. I mean, I was, you know, uh, myself and, and the students I had working with me, you know, I mean, we were kind of desperate to, we, we really wanted it. Um, but you know, we just, there was, there was one point where we had a series of roles that produced results that were non-random. And it was very consistent. And it was probably about a, a series of two hours of rolling. And we were able to pull out that section. And, um, you know, it was really, it was clearly not, not random. But that was it. You know, that was the only section and the only time where we produced, where they, you know, where results were produced that, that showed a consistent, clearly statistically significant um, difference from random. The only problem with that was, was it didn't give us the results we were anticipating. Um, basically, we were wanting to minim minimize, for example, the ones and the sixes, 
uh, that was what we wanted to do. Like the ones and the sixes for both dice were on the uh, on the ends. And so we wanted fewer ones and sixes. We actually, I, th- I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but it was like we were getting way, uh, way more sixes. You know, than either. So it was sort of like, okay, it's not, it's different from random, but it's not what we, what we wanted. But, you know, but, but then I thought, well, maybe that goes back to Wong's argument of, of dice correlation. Because even in Wong on dice, he says, I don't think dice control is possible where you can throw the dice. But what I think can happen is you can have a correlation between the two dice. So we tested that and, you know, found that wasn't really the case. We basically were able to dial the machine into the point where we could get the dice to land, you know, the same, basically the same side that it should, you know, where it's basically spinning on those four front faces and eliminating the side pieces where the dice would land consistently on that, that, you know, flat, you know, side. Um, so we could get it to consistently do that every time. Now, was it landing perfectly flat? Not necessarily, you know, um, and we couldn't do it to get it to do it absolutely every time. There were times when, I mean, we messed around with the machine to try to get it to produce, you know, really, really consistent results. And there were times when we could do that, but it was, it was tough and we could never do it for long enough that, you know, something wouldn't eventually bugger it up. For example, we tried ridiculously high spin rates where we set it to the point where it was, it was spinning at, you know, thousands of RPMs, you know, I mean, it would just, it, where the thing, you couldn't even see it, you know, it was just, just spinning so quickly. Um, and you would think if the gyroscopic effect were possible, it would be possible at that fastest speed, uh, the material too of the table matter. So what we did was we tried different things. We tried smooth surfaces, smooth, flat surfaces. We tried, uh, glass. We tried, um, uh, we tried, uh, oh, a uh, craps table on a really, really hard table, uh, glass and then, uh, granite. And we tried, um, we tried really, really soft material that we put underneath it to see if, you know, the idea being that if it's, if it was really springy, maybe it would kind of absorb the shock and make the dice, you know, m- less likely to roll around. You know, we, we tried all kinds of crazy, you know, shooting it high, shooting it low, uh, we tried topspin, you know, thinking maybe topspin could, you know, roll the dice in a positive way. So the machine was under certain conditions able to do it consistently, but not enough where I could say it would come up, for example, you know, 100% of the time, a particular, you know, the side that we wanted, you know, the the four faces. Um, so the machine's not perfect uh, by, you know, by any means. And, uh, you know, but uh, the argument at the time uh, with my co-authors, okay, the machine isn't perfect, but it's, it's so good based on the, uh, you know, the camera and the, the spin rate and watching it land on the four front faces of both die every time, you know, every single time, same distance, same height, everything else, probably a person couldn't do any better than that. Our assumption was this was, we had built the Michael Jordan of, of dice throwers. We've been going on for a while, so let me try to bring this episode in for a landing. We have to make some effort to make sense of everything we've heard. First, let's start with Frank's experience. He recorded thousands of rolls at home, then took his act into the casino where he won, and he bet his own money. Also, he's not on this podcast trying to get you to attend his dice-throwing seminar. In fact, he gets inquiries from very, very famous gamblers who want to learn to throw dice, and he tells them, don't bother. This is not going to be worth certainly your time, you know, unless you got nothing, nothing but time and a whole lot of energy, because it's it really is a rabbit hole that you can fall pretty deep down in, and still won't come. You won't be able to come up with a definitive answer for it. You'll always be, you know, going in this direction because something doesn't work, zigging and zagging. So yeah, I, I would, you know, listen, John, the, the whole as this thing was going on. We were thinking, well, what are we going to do with all this effort and all this energy that we've put into this? You know, and because I'm real good buddies with Anthony Curtis, I said, well, you know, you can write an article or you can write a book or you can just, you know, write write something that details what was going on. And so we had a we have we had a, a, a agreed that if I was willing to write it, he would publish this book. And the working title for it was Seven Out. I should also mention that Sanford Wong the legendary gaming analyst and probably Dice Control's most well-known proponent, he's kind of moderated his comments about winning at craps over the years. 
He was interviewed on Gambling with an Edge at one point, and you can listen to the episode for yourself, but he sounded very lukewarm on the topic. Richard Munchkin did that interview with Wong, and he's also been paying attention in the Advantage Play world. He says that there's a piece of evidence you'd expect to see if dice control is possible, but that evidence doesn't seem to exist. Where are the APs that have been hammering craps for years? I have a close friend who, uh, you know, that's his whole uh, proof. He's, you know, and this is true. He said, you know, nothing stays a secret. Eventually, the story gets out. And if there was somebody making, who's made a million dollars playing craps, we would hear about it. You know, I mean, eventually somebody's going to hear about it. And, and, you know, once you tell two people and they tell two people and eventually everybody hears about it. Um, and, and there's just, I mean, you know, there have been some of these golden touch guys who claim they've made a lot of money, but, um, I, I just don't take any of that seriously. Frank is an accomplished professional gambler. He didn't have to be on this episode about such a weird topic. He could have easily been on a show about sports betting. Also, right now, Frank has maybe the most interesting job in gambling. He's an advisor to Mattress Mac, the Houston area owner of Gallery Furniture, who's become famous by offering furniture promotions tied to sports outcomes, which he then hedges in the sports betting market. Another way to say it is that Mattress Mac has sort of kind of legalized sports betting in Texas. It's just that the wagers are denominated in headboards and ottomans. Frank helps Mac figure out how to put on the hedges. He's like the world's most unconventional insurance agent. Yesterday, I was on the phone with two two hours with Mac, you know, Mattress Mac, because that's been my current project for the last two or three years. I'm the guy that, you know, works out all his betting strategies. So this is uh, 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 w- another project that's, you know, very different from anything you're used to as an AP. You know, it's, it's a new problem and that kind of, Keeps you interested, keeps you motivated, and, uh, you know, uh, something fresh and new is the same old video poker, you know, sports and blackjack and all that. It's kind of the same thing over and over again. Robert gave his craps experiment the old college try, but wasn't able to demonstrate any kind of reliable control. Although, interestingly, he doesn't think this is the last word. One of the things you would ask me was, do I think this is the the end of it? I I don't. I think the first paper really says... You don't need a ton of control to do it. If it's possible, it should be possible for a human to do. The second paper kind of says, hey, here's here's our best chance of creating a dice rolling machine. But, you know, I mean, there are probably better design. I'm sure, I'm sure there are better designs out there that might be a little more realistic. Now, could that produce the same results we got? I don't know. It'd be super interesting to, to see. I call this episode rabbit hole because of something Frank said. But I should also say that I'm a huge fan of proverbial rabbit holes. I love things where you can become deeply engrossed in a topic, spend a bunch of time thinking about a problem, and also learning everything there is to know, even if it's weird. Actually, especially if it's weird. It's like training for a marathon for your brain and attention span. And yes, a frequent result is that you kind of come up empty. I know that Frank would have loved it if his craps experiment turned into a six-figure payday. And Robert wanted his machine to work. His paper has gotten some attention anyway, but just imagine if he had proven that dice control is real. But that's kind of how things go. You don't only get to do stuff that works. It was a ton of fun. And, um, you know, I still, I talk to people about it all the time. You know, this and other thing. I've done some work on on poker and uh, I'm working on one right now, a gambling game with with a friend, another friend. And, you know, it's a, you know, it, it, in academia, you know, you, you have the time to do it. You know, you have the time to, uh, you know, to take a problem like this that may, may seem silly to some people um, or, or, or seem impossible and, and really kind of sink your teeth into it and, you know, see whether it works or it doesn't. Um, you know, that's what I love about, you know, what I do. Um, you know, it gives me time to do this kind of stuff. Luckily, I'm at a school where they, they appreciate, you know, what I'm doing and they, you know, they enjoy it. But uh, some other people, you know, think that, you know, you need to be curing cancer all day, every day or, you know, solving, you know, poverty or inequality or, you know, something else um, in, in order for the research to have teeth. Um, whereas, you know, for me, it's questions like this 
And, you know, I found a really cool group of like-minded people who, you know, do this kind of statistics and these types of studies. And, um, you know, I, I think games, you know, poker and the history and, um, you know, blackjack and, and all, the, all these games and, and all the online, you know, sports betting stuff, I think it's fascinating. I think that if you find risk fascinating and how you know it works and the the you know the psychology behind it as well as the the statistical uh, impact you know that's that's finance you know that's you know that's gambling that's um you know that's lots of things risk of ruin is written and produced by me special thanks to robert scott frank b and richard munchkin I'm going to put some links in the show notes so that you can find Robert's papers on dice and also listen to the Gambling with an Edge episodes that have covered dice control. I also wanted to mention that I've started a newsletter to stay in touch with listeners, so I'll link to that as well. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email us, riskofruinpod at gmail.com, or follow us on Twitter, at Half Kelly. <laughs>